This is Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective provides a weekly overview of news that pertains to your Christian life and is designed to help you discern and interpret issues that affect you in light of God's truth. Here is Dr. Jim Ekman to help you think biblically about these issues. Welcome and thank you for being with me today on our program, Issues in Perspective. This edition of Issues in Perspective is going to be a little bit different because I want to focus first on an important theological idea that I think impacts how we live our lives and then continue with the more normal ways in which we focus on things here on Issues in Perspective. So in perspective number one, let me think with you about the human conscience. The term conscience is not found in the Old Testament. Perhaps the closest Old Testament term to conscience is heart. In the New Testament, conscience is used 31 times, mostly by Paul. And the key passage is Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Scripture teaches that humans made in the image of God have an innate sense of right and wrong, a moral monitor that either approves or accuses of sin. That is Romans 2, 14 and 15. Conscience serves, therefore, as an umpire which disposes the human to view life situations in a moral, ethical light, thus judging or determining that some actions are right and some are wrong. The fall has drastically affected conscience, but clearly not destroyed it. Evidence of this innate sense of right and wrong is a general agreement in all cultures about certain basic ethical issues, for example, murder, incest, pedophilia, lying, stealing, and so on. So again, conscience, at least the way it's used in the Bible, is this innate sense, this moral monitor that helps us to see actions as either right or wrong, shed a moral, ethical light on how we live. Well, how then is conscience developed in the New Testament? A human being may actually be sincerely following a wrong moral standard that deepens convictions about the rightness of certain actions. Consider Paul, the Apostle Paul before his conversion. Saul, as he was then known, persecuted Christians, he tells us in Acts 23.1, with a good conscience. His deep-seated conviction, his conscience, told him to do right. And his ethical standard was, it is right to persecute Christians. Thus he followed his conscience, but what he did was wrong, because his deep-seated conviction, his conscience, was ill-informed. God needed to change him. God needed to change his convictions, which he did, beginning at the Damascus Road with his salvation. So let me focus now, based on that understanding of conscience, with four thoughts from the New Testament about the human conscience. Number one, when a person becomes a Christian, his or her conscience is heightened, as it were, by being informed both by Scripture and by the work of the Holy Spirit. This, in many ways, is a lifelong process. When we then violate personal or societal or biblical standards, we experience guilt. This is one of the blessings of the conscience for the believer because this thermostat keeps us from doing what might prove injurious to others or to ourselves and ultimately to our relationship with God. When we willfully sin, conscience in conjunction with the Holy Spirit causes us to experience guilt. We are then prompted to confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9, 
and experience the love and forgiveness of God. This is now the ongoing process of how the believer deals with guilt in our lives by means of confession, that is, agreeing with God about our sin. A second thought from the New Testament. As a believer, conscience may accuse us of something or we may have convictions about something when in actuality the action that we're contemplating may either be morally neutral or even right. This is essentially what the Apostle Paul is discussing in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10 and in Romans chapter 14. Here the believer's conscience is weak. That is, his or her convictions are not in conformity with the truth, the correct theological knowledge, in this case, about idolatry, about food, things like that. So at that point, the mature believer must decide to either press his or her freedom or, because of the undeveloped, weak conscience of the brother or sister, choose not to exercise that freedom. This weaker brother then must be open to the liberating teaching of the Holy Spirit who uses God's Word to teach the truth about all things, including how to look at cultural standards, traditions, and practices. This leads to a third comment from the New Testament. For the believer, there is such a thing as a seared conscience. 1 Timothy 4.2 uses that phrase. If conscience is disobeyed repeatedly, or if a believer refuses to develop the deep-seated convictions about issues of life and the maturing process is then halted, one's sensitivity to moral issues soon becomes dulled. If this continues, then the result is a seared conscience. Convictions about a particular issue are developed that the believer either knows are wrong or that has not been fully informed by God's Word. In this case, conscience is then seared. This is what I believe occurs with some genuine believers when it comes to, for example, homosexuality. Continued sin then desensitizes the conscience, and the conscience has been seared, either by conscience disobedience to the clarity of God's Word or by convictions developed without the clear teaching of God's Word. Moreover, Scripture teaches that unconfessed sin and ongoing unbelief can also lead to a desensitized conscience. I think Hebrews 3 is talking about that. As postmodernism in our century is intersecting with evangelical Christianity, I believe this process of a seared conscience is occurring with greater frequency. Finally, in the New Testament's teaching about conscience, we have, of course, the mature conscience that's being heightened by the Spirit by the teaching of God's Word, the weak conscience, conscience that's not developed yet by God's Word, by the Spirit, the seared conscience, where we're dulled, desensitized to the ongoing practice, defiantly, in a sense of sin in our lives. But fourthly, it seems logical to conclude that conscience may also malfunction. What do I mean by that? In a sense, that conscience becomes overly sensitive or hypersensitive. It overfunctions, condemning and accusing the Christian for small errors, forgiven actions, or normal human failures. This constant self-criticism, self-reproach, robs the Christian of joy and any sense of progress in growth toward Christ-likeness. The result, then, is often a performance-based Christianity— that focuses on actions, not God's grace, 
as the basis for acceptance with the Lord. Performance-based Christianity is what produces legalism and so much defeat in the Christian life. If I'm not performing the way I should, or the way my pastor thinks I should, or the way my friends think I should, produces an oversensitive conscience, and thereby false guilt. False guilt is one of the lethal results of performance-based spirituality. I must do, I must perform, I must live up to your definition of sanctification, or I am going to feel guilty. That's what I'm getting at. So what then is the goal of the believer? If it's not to have a malfunctioning or a weak or an undeveloped or a seared conscience, what's the goal? Well, let's call it a mature conscience. The Holy Spirit teaches the believer most clearly what is right and wrong from the objective study of God's Word. That Word informs us of truth. The Spirit then enables us to welcome to embrace that truth. That's what 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 16 is teaching, so that it transforms us from the inside out. And then we begin to develop those deep-seated convictions in the non-moral areas of life that can guide, that can direct the believer in life. The Bible teaches us that it is wrong to go against conscience, but it also clearly teaches that we must be careful to have a conscience that is informed by God's Word, a conscience that's taught by God's Word, so that in these non-moral areas of life, our conscience can be guided by wisdom, by discernment, by understanding. The words that Solomon, for example, uses in the first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs. This is a difficult subject. But I have come across this again and again and have been asked in several Bible studies I teach, again, what does conscience mean? So I decided to put this little paper together and share it as the first perspective on issues in perspective today. I hope you have found it helpful. In our second perspective on the program today, I want to think with you about the church and love for animals. Is it biblical? Christine Gutleben, the Humane Society's first director of faith outreach, has stated that, quote, animal ministries are now in every state, and they do everything, including pet food and traditional food drives, to donating to local shelters, designating church grounds as animal sanctuaries, housing adoption events for animals, printing animals for adoption even in church bulletins, close that quote. She also reveals that many churches include pets in their anti-poverty work. She goes on, quote, They will host an event for the surrounding community and provide medical and dental care for people, but also have a veterinarian who will provide free vaccines to animals on church grounds, close that quote. In St. Louis, another example, there is a pet ministry which is part of the Grace Church in St. Louis, a large non-denominational Protestant congregation that is called Noah's Ark. It runs a pet food drive, supports no-kill rescue of animals, brings pets to visit the sick and infirm, and hosts a grief group for those who have lost a pet recently. Another example, the Church of the King in New Orleans holds monthly events for pets, 
And when they do, hundreds of people line up to get free vaccines for their pet. Indeed, Laura Hobgood-Oster of Southwestern University in Georgetown, Texas, and author of Holy Dogs and Asses, Animals in the History of the Christian Tradition, argues, quote, Animals have always been central to Christianity, as well as the world's major religions. Furthermore, many Roman Catholics are taught that St. Francis of Assisi communed with birds and spoke with a wolf. Thus, on his feast day, which is October the 4th, many churches host events in which animals are blessed by priests or other church officials. So this summary, which comes from a major article I read, this summary focuses on the church blessing, ministering to, making as a part of what they're doing, animals, pets, blessing them, feeding them, even having them vaccinated. Well, how should we think about all this? As Christians, how do we treat the physical world, including animals? What is the value of non-human life? How much care do we as Christians need to take in relation to nature? How does God look at non-human creation? Well, these cluster of questions in this article that I just summarized were brought really home to me several years ago, actually quite a long time ago, by my daughter Joanna. She was about six at this time. Now she's 23, so that was quite a few years ago. Well, it was in the summer, and she was outside our home systematically killing ants on the front sidewalk of our home. I asked her what she was doing, and this was her response. Daddy, Mommy does not like ants, so I'm killing them. Sensing that this was a teachable moment, I asked her, Joanna, do you think God is pleased with you killing ants like this? Are they in Mommy's cupboards? Are they hurting us here on the sidewalk? Well, she did not know how to respond at first to my questions. So we had a talk, and our subsequent talk focused on teaching God's creatures with respect, because God holds us accountable for managing his creation well. Well, I doubt that my six-year-old at that time understood all I was talking about, but it began a process of teaching her about the stewardship of God's creation. And that's what I want to do. A couple of thoughts as we begin. What are some inadequate, in my view, unbiblical views of the relationship of human beings to God's physical creation? Well, theology is on center stage when you ask a question like that. Let's think about Francis of Assisi, his feast day on October the 4th. Well, when you go back and read about him, you see that he believed all aspects of God's physical creation are equal, that there's no difference between birds and human beings. Legends about Francis preaching to the birds or giving counsel to a wolf threatening a small town in Italy abound. But the particulars of God's creation are not equal. Genesis 1 and 2 make it very, very clear that humans are the crown of God's creation. Only humans bear his image. Only humans can experience redemption. Jesus did not die a substitutionary atonement for the birds. He died for human beings. A second inadequate, and in my view, biblical perspective is pantheism. The view that all reality is one, all is God, and God is all. The reason we do not want to cut down California redwoods or kill animals 
is because they're God. The reason we save whales is because they're God. Such a pantheistic position is reflected in the views of Shirley MacLaine, the Gaia hypothesis, and the entire New Age worldview. But the Bible will have none of this. The Bible teaches the presence of God everywhere, but it rejects that all is God. God created all things and is above and beyond his physical creation. Pantheism is simply an unacceptable theological position. Thirdly, in this quick review of inadequate and, in my view, unbiblical views, is what we might call platonic dichotomy, that the spiritual world is all that is important and good. The material world has no value to God and to his disciples. Spirit is good, physical evil. The world is passing away, this position argues. So no, it doesn't matter how we treat this physical world. The Bible will have none of this either. Scripture details the goodness of God's creation. You see that in Genesis 1-2, 2 Timothy 4, uh, 1 Timothy 4-4. 4, 4. It's simply wrong to reject God's physical creation as evil. Furthermore, the physical body is of such importance to God that he will one day resurrect it. Nothing speaks more powerfully about its goodness than the doctrine of the resurrection. So what are some biblical principles that can help us think about the value of animal life? Let me suggest two. The proper biblical view of physical creation begins with a proper view of God. The challenge is to keep in balance God's transcendence, he's beyond the physical, and his imminence, he's everywhere present. God's transcendence focuses on his radical separateness from creation. He's both above and beyond the physical world. But his imminence focuses on his presence in the physical world. To stress his imminence at the expense of his transcendence is to land in pantheism, where everything is God. To stress his transcendence at the expense of his imminence is to see the physical world as insignificant and a tool for exploitation. Neither is satisfactory, neither is God-honoring. There needs to be a balance between God's transcendence and his imminence, between his intimate involvement in all aspects of the physical world and his radical distinction from creation. Whether it is finite, limited, dependent, he is infinite. He is unlimited. He is self-sufficient. Second is the proper view of human beings. Human beings are both interdependent with the rest of creation and yet unique within it because humans alone bear God's image and have stewardship responsibilities over the earth. Christians frequently forget our interdependence with the rest of God's world. Our daily existence, for example, depends on water, sun, air. There is indeed a global ecosystem. It matters how we treat water, the trees, and other animals. If they're harmed, so are we. There's a vital interdependent relationship that comes from the creative hand of God. But the Bible also declares human uniqueness. We are his image bearers. No other part of God's world can say that. Not the animals. Humans have dominion status. God declares in Genesis 1, 26-30 that humans have the responsibility to rule, to have dominion over the non-human creation. Tragically, this dominion has frequently turned to exploitation. But humans are to serve and watch lovingly, almost worshipfully over God's creation, because we're stewards of his world. He has the sovereignty. We have dominion. 
Many years ago, Francis Schaeffer wrote a book in which he argued humans have two relationships, an upward one to God and a downward one to the rest of creation. That accentuates both our intimacy with God, but our stewardship over his world. That downward relationship, that creaturely relationship, is where stewardship comes onto center stage. We are to highlight that upward relationship, but never to the exclusion of the downward. If we do that, that reads to a horrific neglect or ruthless exploitation of the physical world. We are to accentuate both our upward relationship with the living God, our downward relationship as stewards of his physical world. So does the non-human creation have significance to God? Yes, he created the physical world as a deliberate, willful act. And he takes pleasure in his physical creation. That's clear from the creation ordinance in Genesis 1 and 2, and again in 1 Timothy 4.4. Everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected, Paul says, if it's received with gratitude. Also, Psalm 104, we see God rejoicing in his good works. The point of all this is that the physical world is of importance to God. Then it must be important to us. His image bears as well. It is likewise imperative that we note something in the Bible, that God has a covenant, not only with humans, but with a non-human creation. After the flood, God made a covenant with the physical world. In Genesis 9, 9, and 10, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your descendants after you, and with every living creature that's in you, birds, cattle, every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. The physical world has dignity, worth, value, quite apart from its service to humanity. Incredibly, God's plan for redemption has a cosmic quality to it. The biblical hope that the whole created order, including the material world of bodies and rivers and trees, will be a part of the kingdom confirms that the created order is good and important. Romans 8, 19 through 23, demonstrates that at Christ's return, the groaning of creation will cease, for creation will be transformed. Verse 21 says, creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. What we are talking about then is that when it comes to animals or any non-human part of God's created world, we are to treat it with respect and dignity. But it is important that we also balance this with an understanding that we have dominion, authority over the animals. They are not equal to human beings. We're not talking about Christian pantheism here either. We are talking about a created order where the animals and the physical world serve us because we have dominion authority over God's world. That is a clear teaching of the Bible. But it also means we cannot exploit, wantonly destroy, wantonly oppress the non-physical part of God's world. It's keeping a balance. Dominion authority, accountable stewardship. That's the relationship we have with God's physical world. We bear God's image. We are his theocratic stewards. It matters because we are dominion stewards, how we treat his world. It serves us, but we have accountability on how we use it to God's glory. 
I hope these thoughts have helped in helping you to put together a full-orb, well-integrated Christian worldview. You've been listening to Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective is a radio production of Grace University in Omaha, Nebraska. If you have any questions or comments, or you would like a written summary of today's program, write to Issues in Perspective, 1311 South 9th Street, Omaha, Nebraska, 68108. You can also view a transcript and listen online at issuesinperspective.com. Join us next week for Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman. Issues in Perspective is a listener-supported program and ministry of Grace University. You can listen to this program as well as past programs on the web. Just log on to issuesinperspective.com and click on the Listen To button. You can also find the link to Dr. Ekman's website by logging on to this radio station's website and click on the Issues in Perspective banner ad. Issues in Perspective depends on listeners like you in order to broadcast on this station and other Christian radio stations across the country. Please send your tax-deductible donation to Issues in Perspective, P.O. Box 3251, Omaha, Nebraska, 68103. Your generous donation will help spread the Word of God and how it relates to culturally engaged Christians in today's world.